Hey friends, and welcome to Bold Mercies with Heather Johnson. I am so glad that you have decided to join us, to come and listen to some faith-building stories. God's bold mercies in our lives help us live out our stories with boldness. Friends, I'm so excited to introduce Beatty to you. Beatty is a black female physician. I make a note of this because being black and female has had a big impact on her work. Today we talk about her journey into medicine, her greatest inspiration, and the challenges and joys of her work. I am super proud of her. I am so glad that you are here to listen. Join us. Beatty, welcome to Bold Mercies. We are so glad that you are here today with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. It's going to be a really fun interview. So can you just start off by telling us what did your journey into medicine look like? Yeah, sure. So to kind of talk about my background, I, I'm Ethiopian. I was born and raised in Ethiopia. And I mm-hmm. moved to the, to the United States uh, when I was 16. And I've wanted to become a physician while I was in Ethiopia when I was like my young teenage years. And that kind of stemmed from seeing family members being sick. We had a few illnesses in the family, and so we were always in the hospital in Ethiopia. And if you kind of know the healthcare there, there's a lot of um, shortage of medications and equipments. And there's a shortage mm-hmm. of physicians. And so I was able to see that firsthand and got interested in the field to help others to be to be part of the solution for a problem. And then... I moved here in to Los Angeles, actually, to California, and uh, went to high school, undergrad. And as I was doing my pre-medical courses, I really started being interested in medicine and seeing myself mm. being a physician. And from mm. there, I finished undergrad. I did a graduate um, degree in pharmacology, which, which is basically the study of drugs and physiology. And then from there, I really, really loved that whole like anatomy, physiology, and uh, pharmacology, and couldn't see myself doing anything else. And with that, I did some, you know, shadowing experiences with physicians, did a lot of outreach, like projects with uh, underserved communities here in this country, and I also did some work in Ethiopia. All in all, I felt like being a physician was kind of my calling. And from Mm -hmm. there, I, I went to medical school in Virginia at the University of Virginia and did the rest of my training in California. So I I did a year of internship um, in San Diego and I did three years of um, anesthesia residency. So I'm currently finishing up a fellowship in global health and equity in anesthesia in San Francisco. Hmm. Um, That's kind of like my story. Okay, I want to hear more about the fellowship that you're doing, because that sounds super cool. But I would love to go back a little bit, backtrack into your story. I have a 16-year-old, and I'm trying to picture what it would be like to be like, okay, sweetie, we're going to actually just move countries now. And your entire high school years, or at least some of your high school years in, well, for you, it was moving to an English-speaking school, but in a foreign language, and you're going to be navigating these cultural differences. Yeah. And and I would love to hear a little bit. What was that like for you as a 16-year-old? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good question. I mean, it's very hard, as you can imagine. It's not an easy transition. It's never easy, no matter how much you could try. We try to make it easy for other for our kids or uh, as much as my parents tried their best. It's not an easy transition at all, you know? No, um, I can't I, imagine. 
Yeah. So I, when I came, I went to a French school in Ethiopia. So I actually was in a French system, which is very different. There's in, in Addis, the capital city of Ethiopia, there's a bunch of different schools there, like English speaking schools, like British schools, American schools, Italian schools, Greek schools, and then there's French schools. Yeah. <laughs> this is all, this is all, I think we've never been colonized in Ethiopia, which we take a lot of pride in. But I think this right. is just like the influence of the Western world in Ethiopia, in a way, and trying to expand language, you know. And so right. I, I actually grew up in a French system. So okay. I okay. started school when I was three and I learned my native language, which is Amaric, you know, Amarinya. And then I learned French next. And I didn't learn English until, until I was in sixth or seventh grade. So wow. for me, coming to L.A., I didn't speak much English. I spoke French. <laughs> oh my goodness! So, you know, and, so and you so spoke was, two languages, but one of but English was not one of them. Was not one of them. So Amharic and French, and then you had yeah. to learn learn yeah. it really. Pretty much. Wow. So we we did. I took English as a second language, like just how we take sp- like Spanish here, right? Yeah, as a second language right. of French. So I took English as a second language. So I knew some English and my writing was better than my speaking. Like I, my verbal English was terrible. And so I came to high school and I was very much motivated. I was, I've always been motivated in school, even back yeah. in Ethiopia. So I was really excited. I'm like, this is a great country. I'm going to learn so much. I heard about the amazing educational system. And I came here and I was like, oh my goodness, I don't speak the language. <laughs> so, <laughs> like this uh, is going to be really challenging. Yeah. <laughs> And so it was, it wasn't easy. So I had to take English as a second language classes mm-hmm. and, you know, transition to, you know, higher level classes, which I needed to get to college, you know, anyways. And so it wasn't easy. You know, I, it was hard to make friends. It was hard to understand the system. In Ethiopia, we didn't have any like extracurricular activity requirements per se, you know, here you need to be doing a bunch of extracurriculars to get to college. These are things that they're looking at. And I had no idea because we didn't have that in Ethiopia, you know? And so, and I volunteering was a whole new concept. You know, when I told my Mm -hmm. parents, Hey, I'm going to sign up to volunteer my time at this library. And you know, their first response is like, why are you wasting your time? (laughs) (laughs) Because it just is a foreign concept. It's a foreign concept. There's no such thing as volunteering. It's brand new. Even the whole concept of community service is new in Ethiopia. It started maybe in the last 10 years or so, you know, like taking your time and taking time away from yourself and giving it to others is foreign in a lot of low income countries because people are struggling to survive with their own time. So, yeah, you know, when you're have we need to have two, three jobs to support your family, you don't have the time to volunteer your time. It's kind of a luxury. You know, right, so, right. So mm. it, it's a different concept, and so just a lot of things I had to learn and adapt, and a lot of just like a very steep learning curve for me mm. and my family in general, like how things, how Absolutely. the world functions here. You know, where did you go to really put your roots down and to really sink your roots down? Did you make fast friends in high school? Was it in your neighborhood? Did you all connect with an Ethiopian community with the church? Yeah. I mean, where did your roots really sink in LA? You know. For me, the main reason we moved to this country was for education. My parents wanted me, wanted us, like my sister, I have one sister and one brother. So they wanted us to really have good educational opportunities. So that was kind of ingrained in us there. You know, they kept on telling us, we moved here all the way from Ethiopia so you guys can get a good education. So we pretty much felt like we had to like really go after our education. So for me, what 
what really helped me was finding people to help me in that. So I remember in mid high school. So I moved here when I was and at the end of 10th grade. So I did 11 and 12th grade here. And mid 11th grade, I met these group of people who live in LA who have a scholarship for underserved kids and underserved communities and Mm -hmm. to kind of help them get to college. So I connected with them and then I got into the program and they completely, honestly changed everything for me. They were there, they were very supportive in terms of like college application, just like moral support, overall just being a support Mm -hmm. system for me and my family. They met my family, they would take us out for dinners and things. It was just a very... Such, it was just such a great group to be part of. So I think mm. they really anchored me when I was here and kind of showed us the way around like navigating education and just life in general. Did your parents study in America for college or universities? No, not in America. My Both my mom and dad have a master's degree from Europe, from Amsterdam. Okay. And I'm thinking like still navigating an, you know, an American college application and yeah. you're not American, yeah. you're a foreigner, you've never done this before, your parents have never done this before for America. I mean, navigating all that stuff, it must have been a huge help to have this group that kind of walked you through that. Definitely. It was a huge help. No matter how much my parents were educated, they couldn't understand the system here. It was a, it was hard enough to understand it for me, you know. Our high school in Ethiopia, we didn't have the luxury of choosing our, our classes. Our classes are given to us. This is what you take and you just kind of follow that path, you know. Right. And so here, when they're asking us what classes we would like to take, I was so confused. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I get to choose? That's weird. And so just even that, like, which classes should I even choose? I have no idea. And like understanding, it's it's very confusing when you're coming from the outside and trying to understand this whole system, you know, especially if you're not, you haven't been part of the system. So I think it's really important to have some kind of counselors or people who are there and supporting you, you know. And understand like your specific challenges. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what that group did. They're called, uh, they're still actually here. It's called One Voice Scholarship. And it's literally, I think it's like six or seven individuals from a nice area in LA who are doing pretty well for themselves, who got together and got scholarships from colleges to create this group. And they Mm -hmm. mentor and support underserved students from different high schools who have wow. the potential of going to college. Wow, uh, which so, is, so cool. Yeah, it's a great program. So you are currently doing a fellowship, and tell us again, it's in global health. And equity. Okay, global health yeah. and equity. And so tell us a little bit about this fellowship. Yeah, I mean, this fellowship is actually pretty new. So once you're done with training with, in anesthesia or any kind of training in residency, you can do a sub-specialization, and some people can choose to do a fellowship. Most of the fellowships for anesthesia are very clinically oriented. So we can do like a pediatric uh, fellowship in pediatric anesthesia where you just focus a whole year taking care of babies under Mm -hmm. anesthesia. Or you can do ICU or you can do obstetrics anesthesia. There's a a variety of different fields. Global Mm -hmm. anesthesia and equity is very different and it's new. And it kind of addresses the need of anesthesia in the world, how some countries don't have um, access to anesthesiologists, drugs, the, in terms of getting more training, like more anesthesiologists trained around the world, there's a huge need for safe anesthesia in the world. And so this kind of addresses that. And so we work on 
many different aspects of that. So some of us work on capacity building, so training physicians and non-physicians to administer anesthesia and creating that training track. So they have, you know, there's some group, some people in my group doing that in Uganda. There's some projects in Tanzania. We do courses like safe courses to teach how to administer safe anesthesia to patients. And mm-hmm. that's when I was in Tanzania in August to do that. It's a three, four day intense course where anesthesia providers in Tanzania come and get this like crash course on safe anesthesia. So more of a review uh, for mm-hmm. them and, and then kind of answer their questions. They also do a lot of like hands-on practices as well. So that was, you know, we do things like that. So we reach into the world pretty much mm-hmm. and try to serve low and middle income countries in that capacity. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. our group specifically is is mostly based in Uganda, Tanzania, and now we're hoping to do some things in Ethiopia. Wow. Do you see yourself pursuing this more in the future as you finish up this fellowship in a while? Yeah, for sure. I I just see myself, you know, working in this country while also um, enabling providers in in Ethiopia for per se. So my what I'm doing right now as I'm finishing up is having an open communication with providers in Ethiopia and providing mm-hmm. them with like the resources that they might be needing. By resources, I don't mean like actual like equipment. Like I think, right, right. Because yeah, those are things those are really hard things to to address because it's a very systematic issue, you know, like where the medications come from. Is it a government policy that's not letting medication come into hospitals or is it a shipping policy? It's a very right. complicated and intricate like, right. um, problem. So what we what I think we can do is to enable the physicians who are there with what they think they need the most, you know. And so we do a lot of teaching, like online teaching, sharing resources, mm-hmm. educational resources, sharing like training modules for their residents and things like that from here. So they are able mm-hmm. to implement that there. Um, that's what I, I hope to do now, is especially now as I'm finishing up this fellowship, is to continue to have that open communication with them and kind of provide them with the support they need from here. And mm-hmm. as as I'm working here, then I will be able to kind of go back and forth and be there on site as well and trying to kind of drive some of the projects that we're we're thinking of doing. So, wow. That is so amazing. You are such a brave woman. You know, you've committed so much of your time also to education. I mean, to learning, to being in school, to going through your residency program and in anesthesia. I'm just really amazed by you and I just want to say it out loud that I applaud you for all that you've given yourself to and sacrificed yourself to and I just pray that you're able to reap a great benefit from all of that now as you go back and serve in you know, in your community in California, but also are able to kind of reach out and touch different places of the world and especially your your birthplace, your your native your native people. Yeah. So what so what has really been your greatest inspiration or or what or who has been your greatest inspiration in life that really has brought you to this place? You know, I, I would say there's a lot of inspiration in my life, uh, but I would say the one person would be my mom. She's very much inspiring, not just to me, but to a lot of people around her. So as I mm-hmm. said, when we came to the United States, my entire family migrated. And so we, it was a family of five. So my mom, my dad, and then we I have two other siblings. There's mm-hmm. five of us who came. And my dad was sick when he came. And he, that was one of the reasons why we also came is for him to get a bit of a, of me, like get medical attention here and medical mm-hmm. care. And so he never was able to work when we came here. He was mostly kind of making sure he was taking care, you know, of 
medically. So mm. as he's dealing with that, my mom had to take the burden of supporting the family and guiding the family mm. by herself, which is really hard to do when you have like basically two teenagers. I was 16, my sister was 14, and my little brother was five. And so, you know, it becomes very tough to kind of survive when you're only the only person who's doing all the finances, you know, you're only yeah, the, person, absolutely. the only person working. And so even with that, though, you know, she took care of my dad. So there are times where he was in the hospital and she, you know, had to go see him and we had to go see him and she's working and we're going to school. It's very chaotic. Mm, <laughs> you I know? can only but imagine. This, yeah. But at the same time, it was very peaceful because she kept the place very coherent. She's a strong mm. woman of God and she kept us. We prayed a lot. We went to church a lot. So that kept us very much grounded. So yes. she, she, even in the midst of all of all, all these things that she was able to keep the family coherent and we all turned out pretty pr- doing pretty well for ourselves now, you know, you know, that for that reason, I feel like she's very inspiring to me. And the, the craziest thing is, even with all this, all these things going on, she ended up going to nursing school in the midst <gasps> of all this. Believe no it or not. Yeah, I, I don't even know how she did it unbelievable because she was like you know i'm not gonna be working some low job forever i need to go back to school and get a degree and then she decided on nursing and so she went back to school and i remember there were times where she was studying and we're studying everyone's studying (laughs) (laughs) wow i can see why she is such an inspiration to you she was holding down the fort raising teenagers and a kindergartner And then decided, hey, let me go back to nursing school so that I can provide a good job and be able to provide what these kiddos need. Amazing. I can really see why she's such an inspiration to you. Yeah. Wow. She's she's um, very courageous and very brave. I think we, we, she showed us a lot of things that, that someone needs to kind of like battle some hardships in life. We had many obstacles and we were able to see how she gracefully went through, like went above. Uh, with the help of God, again, for that reason, she's just super inspiring to me. You know? Can you even put your finger on one thing that you're like, man, this this changed your life? Is there one thing you're like, man, this is the one thing that I am going to walk with the rest of my life? You know, the one thing I'll say is her faith. She has a very strong faith in God. Mm-hmm. And so whenever we even have we run into situations. The first thing she would say is like, did you pray about this? You know, <laughs> she's like, yeah. the first thing you should do is pray about this. And she's like, don't call me about any issues before you even pray about this. You know, <laughs> so, yes, so yes. She, 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 she ingrained that in us and she's a very, very strong in her faith. And that made us be strong in our faith because we see it through her. You know, we saw it through her. So when there's one time where she was in nursing school and there's this one instructor who was trying to purposely fail her out of her class. And even though she was doing, surprisingly, she was actually doing really well. And we're all surprised. We're like, mom, you barely speak good English. I don't understand how you're able to even pass all these classes. And somehow she's like, you know, I'm praying every day. And she, because she, she does have really good educational background. It's just her conversational English wasn't the the best back then. So she's, (laughs) she's book smart. And so there's this one um, teacher who was trying to fail her. And she said, you know, she told us, she was like, one person's trying to fail me for no reason. And she couldn't tell why. She's like, I don't know if it's because I'm a woman or a black person. I can't tell. But she's like, I'm going to pray about it. And I remember her specifically praying about it for a long time, for like a whole month Mm. or so. And then a few months later, she came back and she said, another student 
went and told the director that he's being unfair with her. And because of her, a bunch of other students went against him. And now he's not even being, he's not even teaching clinically. Wow. And so he got demoted. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, and she said, it's because I prayed. And like, she has so much faith in how she prays and and how she leads her life that for us, it's really get the good testimony. And she had, and when, when that happened, she wasn't even surprised. She's like, I knew that God listened to me and that something was going to happen. Like that he, I knew that my problem would have been, would be solved. Yeah, I, mean, other that. Like I love that because it's what we all long for is that childlike faith, right? Yeah. That it's just yeah. like, I'm going to just jump into the deep end and I'm going to trust that my Papa is going to be there and he's going to catch me. And that's what she just did. She just had the faith to pray and know that God is going to meet her in her needs and he's going to yeah. catch her. And he yeah. did. That is so awesome. I'm sure that that has been a, oh man, just a huge inspiration. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about your mom and kind of her difficulties with that one professor. Maybe it was she was black, maybe a woman, maybe it was that she was an immigrant even perhaps it was that reason. And I'm sure that you have faced some of these same kind of challenges as you have made your way through medical school and residency and even now in this fellowship and just navigating the world and especially navigating probably medicine and being a physician. So have you experienced any sort of difficulties or what are kind of the challenges that you find for yourself as a black woman in medicine? I mean, it's, it's a good question. Uh, it's extremely challenging in general, not just in medicine. In a lot of fields, there's not a lot of representation of Black people in a lot mm -hmm. of different fields, including medicine, tech, you know, a lot of uh, accounting and things like that, and, like big firms. There's not a big representation of Black folks in general. For me, like starting from undergrad, I went to UCLA for undergrad, which is a great school, and I was excited to even get accepted. And like, I remember out of one of my organic chemistry class, out of the entire organic chemistry class, there's only, I think, two or three Black students in that class. And there's over 250 students in the entire class. There's not that many Black people in, in science in general, in like right. STEM programs, you know? Right. And so it's it's not easy to be the only person who looks like me in, in a class of 200 people, you know? It's just yeah. not comfortable it doesn't feel normal you know yes especially for me because I come from Ethiopia where everyone looks like me and now suddenly mm. I'm in a different environment wow um, so it's not easy and it, it doesn't just stop in undergrad it goes to medical school is the same there's less than like three percent of blacks medical students in the entire my entire in the entire medical school I was actually involved in in the recruitment like recruiting and diverse group of incoming medical students and so wow. I was involved with that when I was there very heavily and I, our numbers did increase afterwards and then in residency I was the only black resident in the entire residency program and there's about 14 per class and we have four classes so mm. of, of about 50 people I was the only black person you know it doesn't mm. make sense because the population doesn't look like that I think right. every field right. should have a representation of the population and so it's not easy it's difficult and being a black females being a female is difficult because now you have like a second <laughs> it's like not only are you black like next against you in some people's yeah. minds <laughs> exactly because you're like not only are you black but now you're a female and then being young is another issue because now you're black young and females like all the exes are against you <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've walked in to a patient's room and they have said to you, like, 
where's the doctor? Or like, like giving you a puzzled look or are you the yeah. doctor? <laughs> I'm sure yeah. you've experienced yeah. that. Yeah. That happens all the time, all the time to this day. That happens all the time. And sometimes it's because patients are genuinely don't, because I do look young. I understand that a lot of people have told me you look young, which is fine. And patients don't really grasp the fact that, you know, young in medicine, usually you associate medicine with like a lot of schooling and but you have in your mind an older person. I understand that. But sometimes people are surprised because you're black or you're a female, you know, and mm-hmm. a lot of the what we call microaggression comes from patients, actually, and not just the staff around you. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it's not very difficult when some a patient makes a, a, a remark and say, oh, like, I didn't realize you're my doctor or, you know, stuff like this where you clearly know that they're they're thinking something else, but you're not addressing it. Uh, it's mm-hmm. important to have allies around you who understand that. That's why now there's a, with the whole Black Lives Matter movement, there's such a huge initiative to make sure microaggressions are addressed, implicit biases are addressed at work, you know, especially mm-hmm. in medicine. It's not easy, yeah. you know. Yeah. There's, there's very few Black female physicians who are like leadership position in hospitals. And so it's, it's, it's a work in progress and there's an issue for sure. But I think we're slowly addressing it now, hopefully. Yeah. And you you could potentially be part of this generation that can slowly see a shift in that. I feel like the murder of George Floyd was the catalyst. But now we need to pray, first of all, for massive change and then be agents of change. And my prayer is that your generation is going to see a my goodness, it's going to take so long and it's going to be such an uphill climb. But slowly that your generation would begin to see a shift. I also have really loved, you know, just through following you on Instagram, I have connected with other, they haven't all been black female doctors. A large percentage of, of them are, but some are black male doctors. And I just have loved it. Like I have learned so much from following you and from what you share, but also the people that you followed. I've connected and followed them on Instagram. And my goodness, I'm like, what a little like mighty army. And they are moving forward and using their voice and using the power that they do have within the medical field to make a difference. And I'm just cheering you all on and praying that this is going to, that you all are going to start seeing a shift what are some of the greatest challenges in your workspace? I mean, you know, quite honestly, I have to go back to the being black and female again. Well, I please think, do. Yeah, that's the biggest challenge I face right now is in general, but even before this movement started, I think one of the main one of the main issue too is the world is kind of waking up to the disparities and the discrimination and aggression, microaggression, microaggression now because of George Floyd and the other folks will be murdered, but it's been happening for years, you know. Mm-hmm. For me, as I said, it's been happening since undergrad. Since, you know, my high school was diverse enough that I was able to not really feel like I was the only Black person, you know. But starting undergrad to through medical school, through graduate school, to residency, to now, it, it's, that's been the biggest challenge. It's been the only Black female in the room during a meeting. Tell us what, it, what that feels like. The main thing is, you know, I don't mind being the only Black person in a room if that implies being heard being advocated for, supported, you know, I'm fine being the only Black person, but usually it translates to not being heard and not being mm. given a seat at the table. So unfortunately, because of the skin of my color, the color of my skin, and because of my gender, my voice is not always heard. And that's the biggest thing. Like there is this culture of demeaning and not listening and not valuing what Black people bring to the table. 
despite your education, despite all your training. So I think mm-hmm. that's the biggest challenge I have. I So I work as an anesthesiologist and I have nurse anesthetists that work under me. And so I supervise them. And so when I meet patients, if I'm working with an older white man, they automatically think he's the physician. Mm. Because they're not used to seeing, I guess, I mean, I don't know what excuse they have. I have a huge bunch that says doctor on my jacket. <laughs> and I'm introducing myself as saying, hey, I'm the phys- anesthesiologist. And the doctor, right. And they still don't, it doesn't process right in their minds. Because they, they're not used to seeing black female physicians. You know, we need to show the world more of us and put us in leadership positions and you know, foster our ideas and support us and things like that. If you ask most Black physicians at this time, even before, if you ask them what's the big challenge, most people would say getting a seat at the table. Like when there's something happening, there's a meeting, there's an, a project or some, like some initiative in the department, having a seat at the table, getting leadership positions, being heard, being an integral part of what of the mission of the hospital or the department. So these are the things that we're advocating for. And so Love it. Okay, talk to us then. I I don't know how many people are that listen to my podcast are physicians, but talk to us as patients. Okay, so <laughs> we just need to like clear this uh when we have a doctor or a physician walk into the room, we just need to clear all our preconceived notions that it's a white male, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you just have to, this This is the, the thing is like, we've learned so much throughout the years. It's really hard to unlearn fast. So yeah, some of the things, you know, like these are biases. We all have biases. I have my own bias. I was raised in a very non-liberal culture. And so for mm-hmm. me, I have my own bias about certain things, but I think we need to be aware of our biases. It's continuously, whatever you were doing in life is continuously reassessing our biases. It doesn't even have to be like a physician walking into a room to see a patient. It can be you know, like any of us walking into a restaurant and having uh, a black waitress versus a white waitress. You know what I mean? It's just how yeah. we treat people, how our biases affect us. You know, it's like even for me, like when I have my hair done, like when I have my hair straight and uh, slick, I get treated very differently than when I have my hair curly. It's, and it's yeah. the truth. People take me differently because um more black a certain way and less black another way you know and i it's a night and day difference i'm telling you how i get treated for anything like i go to the post office i go grocery shopping i get treated very differently when so i sad. look different you know and that's just mm-hmm. the way it is people have that ingrained in their mind for me what i would say is when someone walks in into a room a physician walks in into a room it's just kind of being accepting of who they are and being open to what they have to offer you know and not mm. completely dismissing them just because of what they look like and that goes mm. for nurses goes for any staff in the hospital or yeah. anyone that you encounter really yeah that's so good it's almost like we've walked up this long ladder of racism and how it's systemic and systematic yeah. and but but we all do bring biases to the table. And so it's like we have to unlearn those biases, like you said, like climb back that ladder, come back down off that ladder of biases, walk back away from them and be like, wait, how can we just interact with the other person just as they are the image of God created just as beautifully and woven together in their mother's womb, just like me and just like all my neighbors are as well. Yeah. yeah, and I would add, so it's really hard for us to do that if we don't get outside of our comfort zone. If, for instance, if someone is used to living in a mostly white neighborhood and they haven't really had any kind of interaction with the Black community, 
it's really hard for them to feel comfortable in that environment because you yeah. you don't really interact with those people. So it goes for any kind of things that make us feel uncomfortable, things that mm-hmm. that's unknown to us. We're not used to being raised in that kind of environment. So it's comfortable for us to be just be friends with our likes and kind of have our own values and not be open to it. What I tell my friends when they ask me now is like, you know, get out of your comfort zone. Like if you usually eat at like a really nice restaurant or you're used to going to this type of this part of town start going to this other part of town you know find restaurants where you can go to interact with those communities be part of things that will put you in in a situation where you're right in the middle of it and you have and you're forced to communicate and talk to that community and you start realizing the problems you start having conversations and things like that it's really hard to be in your comfort zone and try to help or try to change the dialogue. You really have to be in the middle of it. Like physically in the middle, which also means filling your own table too with people that are going to be outside of your comfort zone, that are going to take maybe a little bit more work relationally, honestly, because they're not your quote unquote people that you are comfortable with. And so they might relationally take a a little bit more work, but it's so worth it in the end, right? It's so worth it. So what are some of your greatest joys in your workplace? You know, I I love my job. Anesthesia is a very fascinating field. What we do is basically, it's very multidisciplinary in a way because we we do a a variety of things. Our scope of practice is very wide. Mm -hmm. What I love about it, what are some of the things that bring me joy is when a patient comes in, they're super scared, they're having a huge surgery and, you know, like surgery is a big altering, life altering event. And so mm-hmm. we sometimes forget that because we're so used to doing this on a daily basis. This mm-hmm. is kind of like why I wake up, I give anesthesia and an anesthetic and I go to, you know, go home. <laughs> so for yeah. me, it's very natural. Every like, day. Yeah. <laughs> every day I do it. But seeing patients come in really scared and anxious and not knowing what's going to happen to them, but being able to calm them down, explain to them in detail what their anesthetic is like, answering all their questions. And we're like the last person who they're seeing or talking to as they're going off to sleep. So I usually, when I put my patients off to sleep, I usually ask, what's what's your favorite place in the world? And they're like, oh, it's like this one place I love. And so I usually tell them, you know, imagine you're there and you're going there and you're just going to be resting there peacefully for the next three hours. And so as they're saying that, I put them to sleep. It just gave me joy being able to assist patient that way, you know, and then mm. they wake up and they sometimes remember like, I remember I said, and I was, I was going on this Island and I'm now awake and I don't remember falling asleep, you know? And so it's just, it brings me joy to just make sure people are taken care of and comfortable, especially yeah. when they have such big surgeries and they're so stressed out coming in. Yeah. That I love that. I didn't even think about it, but really when you are meeting people, Every single time you meet them, you are meeting someone maybe in their highest point of anxiety, yeah, <laughs> you know, in exactly. their life. Yeah, yeah. And that you're able to be such a gift of peace to them, right? Yeah, and yeah, offer that yeah. to them. Wow, yeah. that's so beautiful. I love that. Yeah. And, I, you know, and and you take care of them in their most vulnerable state. They're completely unaware. They're asleep. You basically are like their guardian for the next three, four hours they're having surgery, sometimes all day long. You really are 
the only person who's taking care of them that entire time. What the surgeons do their surgery, do their work, so, right? Yeah. So it's a very I love that I love my it's a very sacred job. I take it seriously. It's a very high acuity job. You know, things can go wrong anytime. Now that uh, you know our population is has a lot more diseases than compared to 20, 25 years ago. You know, a lot of yeah. chronic illnesses, so complication rates are much higher in the OR as well. It's not an easy job, but mm-hmm. you, you know, these are small things that bring me joy, and mm-hmm. it's even more amazing when patients are thankful. Some of the yeah. things that I love working in Tanzania or Ethiopia or low-income countries is that patients are extremely thankful for any kind of work that you do with them. Anything. They're very thankful compared to mm. patients here in general. I sometimes miss that. I'm like, oh, I really wish patients were just so thankful for what we do, you know? So it's very refreshing when you get patients who are just like very thankful from the bottom of their heart for what's done for them. I think especially, I mean, probably physicians across the board, but especially anesthesiologists, I would think, in a developing country because it's just not as common to get anesthesia. No, you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's so in some of these low-income countries, if you go to the rural parts of the country, the resources are not there. So the type of anesthesia that's used sometimes is extremely minimal. And Mm. the mortality and morbidity with anesthesia in those countries is much higher as well. Well, I'm so glad that you are in this field and making a big difference. I end every podcast by asking, what is one thing right now making you happy? So, Beatty, what is one thing right now in your life that is making you happy? (sighs) There's, uh, There's a few things. The one thing that's making me very happy I recently met a really nice guy who I think I'm going to marry. <laughs> so Yay, that, that is reason <laughs> to rejoice, right? I know, I know. So that's really making me happy. And it's, it's wild how we met. We met when I was in Rwanda for a conference a few uh-huh. like last year. And I, I didn't even meet him there. I met a friend of his that I never met before. So I met her for the first time. And we got along so well with her that she was like, hey, I really want to like connect you with this guy who's in Ethiopia right now. And I'm like, how is this going to work? I'm, we're in Rwanda <laughs> and you know this guy in Ethiopia and I'm going back to America. Like, I, I don't even know how this is going to work out. <laughs> but long story short, I ended up going to Ethiopia for another trip and we met there. We got along really well. He's now in the States. You know, we prayed about this. He prayed about this and I prayed about this. So... That's one thing that's making me really happy right now. Of course, as it should be. That is so, so awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I have loved having you on the podcast today. I feel like I've just really gleaned a lot from you. I've learned a lot from you. And I just appreciate all that you shared. This has been a lot of fun having this conversation with you. So thank you for joining us today on Bold Mercies. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a great pleasure just sharing my story with you and everyone who's listening. So thank you again. Thank you so much. Beatty will be with us today on Instagram at Bold Mercies Podcast. Join us there. And I would love to hear from you at heatherjjohnson.com. As always, please rate and review as that helps us so much. 